Hi everyone, Data Stories number 12. I'm Moritz. How are you? I'm doing great. It, it might be 13 even. I'm not sure. 13? Yeah. Really? Oh, oh but, but the How heading come? says number 12, but who knows? It, it's a lot of data stories. <laughs> we will leave that to the listeners. No, data I guess stories we, number I many. I think it's correct, it's 12. Should be 12, okay. What is your German soul? You lost uh, it. It's, uh, 12 is my unlucky number. Okay. I prefer ah. 13. <laughs> you should have skipped it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so how are you doing? You're still in Germany? I can hear that. I'm still in Germany. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. love it so much that I cannot Just stay for no, another yeah. week. Yeah. yeah, I spent some time at the consulate yesterday for the visa, and I hope it's going to be fine soon. <sighs> it's such a messy process. Yeah, yeah. I will tell you. <laughs> it's better <laughs> if I don't comment on the show. Like, it's like a weekly soap, yeah. <laughs> on my experience. En Enrico would like to go to America. That doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you? What are you doing? Oh, good, good. We just um, finished the documentation for Emoto. I had a nice video for the installation for the hardware piece. So we pushed it out too. So mm -hmm. thanks again to Studio Nand there for the great work. And now I'm wrapping up my other project, which is a uh -huh. spin globe. I, I thought, yeah, I thought there was There was so much vacation. parallel this summer. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. It's a big spinny globe, 3D type of thing for FIFA, for the world, like the soccer association, showing all their development activities. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Pro proper spinny globe. So we'll, we hope we will launch that soon. And then I'll post a bit of documentation as well, of course. Okay. So now you are all in this sport visualization craze, right? Totally. I'm, I don't know what <laughs> happened. That was a pure coincidence, actually. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm all sportive. Yeah. And uh, yeah, before we start, we have uh, another big guest today. But we before we start, I want to briefly thank Andy and Karen for, for sending very nice emails to them. And uh, yeah, and if you feel like sending an email to us with comments or just to say hi, please do it. We, we really love to have any kind of feedback from you guys. Yeah, it's always um, great to get emails. I love that. And also just to hear, you know, how people listen to us and what they like most and so on. So keep, keep that coming. We also had that idea of doing uh, an episode together with our listeners, right? Yeah, sure. We still, yeah, have, this in, we still have to test that if that works with like Google Hangouts. But if that works... That would be awesome. Then we yeah. will invite all of you for a big party. Yeah, if any, if any of you listening to the podcast have any, has any information on how to do it properly, please let us know because <laughs> it looks like it's a bit of a mess, but we, we will try one day. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, I think it's time to introduce our special guest for today. Absolutely. Uh, Moritz, you want to introduce him? I feel too nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so our guest today is Alberto Cairo. Hi, Alberto. Hey, Moritz. Hi, hey, Enrico. How are you doing? Doing all right. Yeah. Just enjoying the weather here in Miami. Cool. Ah, it's really warm. <laughs> Miami. 
Never rains in Miami. <laughs> well, it always rains in Miami, but it's always really warm. But it's warm. Yeah. Is it like very like uh, moist and warm, like this type of climate? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. You're always sweating and stuff. So. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so very nice to be here. Thank you for, for having me and for inviting me. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's we've pleasure. had you on our list for a while. I mean, so we're, we're happy that, that now it's, uh, we can have this conversation. <laughs> so, um, yeah. We met in at Malofier, right? Uh-huh. And, but we had first time like in person, but we had some contact before. Mm-hmm. And and for me, this also Malofier, also for Andy, who we had on the show, was really eye-opening with respect to the information graphics world. That was really fascinating to see. And we also got in touch about your book that you have been writing. Or You, you wrote that book in, in Spanish, um, I think a yeah, few ori- years ago yeah, already, I wrote right? It originally, I wrote it ori- originally in Spanish, but then I was a... Uh, and it, it got published in Spanish in mm-hmm. 2011. But then I was contacted by uh, Pearson Education, the publishing house. They were interested in the book. So I translated the book and then I expanded it because the, uh, the American version, the English version of the book has... 100 or 120 extra pages. Ah, okay. So it's actually much longer than the original than the original book. So it's really like a new book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's actually a new book. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. that's correct. Yeah. So uh, can you tell us a bit about your background? Like, who are you and where you're coming from? What are you doing uh, sure, today? Sure, sure. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, it, I am a, I am a, I am an instructor at the uh, at the University of Miami at the School of uh, Communication of mm-hmm. the University of Miami. I am originally from Spain, and my background is in journalism. So I studied journalism in Spain many years ago, and then uh, I got an internship in a newspaper, but not to write, although I wrote for a while. The internship that I got was not to uh, to write stories, but to create information graphics, mm-hmm. so to design charts, maps, diagrams, illustrations, etc., so I started doing that at a local newspaper in, in Spain, and then I moved to other newspapers. I got a bit of experience in newsrooms, and then I moved into teaching, first at the, uh, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, at the School of Journalism, mm-hmm. and then here at the, uh, at the University of Miami. So all my career has been related to information graphics, to the, uh, you know, encoding of information by means of graphics, maps, etc. Mm-hmm. But you come from the really the practical side of working every day in a newsroom and producing uh, like news graphics. Is that right? Yes, yeah. yes. That is my that is my background. Mm-hmm. I was the uh, I was the online infographics director at El Mundo, which is a, a big newspaper in Spain, for five years. Yeah. Then I also was the infographics director. And infographics and multimedia director at a, at a magazine in, in Brazil mm-hmm. uh, called Epoca. I spent two years in Brazil before coming back to the U.S., to the University of Miami. So, yeah, I mean, I have always been in the, uh, in the practical side of the, uh, of the business. Even now that I teach uh, at the university also, the, the way I teach is a very, pra- I mean, I have a very practical orientation. So besides teaching the students about the theory of information graphics, about statistical charts, maps, diagrams, etc. I also teach them how to do graphics mm-hmm. using using different tools. Nice. And so is that the University of Miami? Is it like a normal university or is that like a design school? No, no, it's a communication school. Mm-hmm. So we have a, we have a program, a journalism program. Okay. And my, my classes are 
related somehow to the journalism program because it has, it ha they have a very strong journalistic component, uh, although I teach visual communication. Uh, but also we have a program, a very, very new program that we are launch launching very soon in collaboration with the School of Computer Science, which is going to be about interaction design and information visualization. So I'm going to be related to that as well. My class is also about uh, data visualization. So my classes are also related to that new program. Mm -hmm. So we have several programs, but I am in a, at a communication school. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure if we have this type of thing in Germany. Enrico, are you, are you I familiar think, with I think, yeah. I think there is something similar in, in, in Italy. I'm uh -huh. quite sure, but I've never yeah. heard you mean of a, anything at a communication school. Yeah, a communication school. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason why we have these programs here is that, and this is also this is also related to the reason I wrote my book, The Functional Art, is because among journalists there is not a very you know deep and broad, a long and long culture of producing information graphics to communicate with, re with readers mm. uh, and, and to convey information. Information graphics in many newsrooms are still considered mere you know, illustrations or yeah. a way to fill out a space or something. So yeah. they don't have, many newsrooms don't have uh, the, um, you know, the engineering view of information graphics that they should be structured in a way that uh, facilitates the uh, understanding of information. So it's an it's a newer trend that communication and journalism schools are incorporating courses, are creating courses on information design and courses on about <coughs> data journalism, etc. So it's a new trend, but it is growing, at least in the at least in the US. Are you are you aware of any other similar type of course in the US or anywhere else in the in the world? Sure, sure. There are several places in the U.S. where you can learn these. I mean, the University of North Carolina, for example, is teaching courses on infographics, visualization, data journalism, etc. Northwestern University, I believe that they are also into these. Stanford University doesn't teach journalism per se, but they have courses on data visualization, obviously. Columbia, Columbia University has a joint program between the communication school and the computer science school, which is something that we are trying to do down here right now mm -hmm. with this new, this new interaction design program. And then in Spain, there are several places where, uh, where you can learn data journalism and visualization now, or visualization for journalism, mm -hmm. which is what I teach. Uh, for, for instance, El Mundo, the newspaper I used to, I used to work for, is launching a master's degree that is called investigative journalism, data journalism, and and data visualization. So wow. it's a master's degree related to that, and it's going to be launched really, really soon. And there is also a program in Barcelona, and I don't remember the name. Uh, there is also a university in Barcelona called Universitat Oberta de Catalunya, where I teach. It's a, it's a, it's a public public online university. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's fully accredited and everything, and I teach there a, a, a course on information visual, information visualization. So there are several places where you can learn for mm, sure. Nice, yeah. and there are many programs there where I mean, probably <coughs> in other in other places that I am I am not aware of. So student students attending your courses are students trained in journalism, right? Yes, mainly what we have is people students that have gone through classes about reporting and about editing and about you know telling stories and first they take a, before they got to, into my, my class about information graphics and visualization they take a course that is called intro to graphic design or intro to multimedia 
But when they get to that course, it, it's actually intro to multimedia design. So it involves class a traditional graphic design plus a little bit of interaction design theory. Mm -hmm. So they got to that course with that editing course already taken. So they think as mm -hmm. journalists, as a storytellers, then they learn graphic design, and then they get into my information graphics and visualization course, already knowing how to report a story, how to gather information, how to go online and go to a, you know, a, to a open a, a data set or something, a government a database or something, download the data. And then what they, what they learn in my course in my courses is how to get those data, how to manipulate those data somehow and try to extract stories from those data. I mean, what those data means. And that is the goal of my, course, of my courses. And it's also what I talk about in, the, in my book, in The Functional Art, which is basically about storytelling by using data. It's not about data visualization per se, although it has a component related to that. It's about how to tell stories based on data. So it's a very journalistic book, but at the same time, it is also it's a it's a book about visualization as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So since, since you mentioned since you mentioned your book, can you briefly can you briefly describe what's your book about? How it is organized, and maybe even the story of your of or its its making. I don't know. How did you come about creating this book, writing this book? Sure. Well, I, I guess that I could get started with the story of the book because uh, that explains the structure of the book itself. When I got into, uh, when I got into academia uh, back in 2005, when I started teaching courses about visualization at, at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, I got into the, uh, into the classroom and I didn't really know what to recommend my students to read. So I, I had to put together you know, a list, a reading list based on chapters by different people. So I got a little bit of Tafti, a little bit of Stephen King, <laughs> a little bit of, thing, of Colin Ware, a little bit. But everything was, uh, you know, it, it was not, a, those readings didn't tell a cohesive stories. And it was really hard for students to relate one reading to the other reading into a single cohesive narrative. And the other, the other thing is that, those books that I recommended were, are wonderful because, you know, Tafti, few, those, I mean, those are the uh, foundations of what we do. But at, at the same time, those books are not written specifically for journalists and designers. They are written for statisticians. They are written for people in business intelligence. They are written for researchers in computer science departments. So they are very technical in a sense, and they are not tailored specifically for journalists and designers. They don't talk about a, a lot about storytelling, for instance, how to organize a story based on data. So there was a niche there, like a, like a hole there that I wanted to fill somehow. So I, I started writing and thinking about a textbook back in 2005, and I started writing several chapters, organizing my things. I started using those chapters in my courses. And at the end, I ended up having the functional art, which is a, it tells you know, it, it, it actually conveys how I see what information graphics and visualization are about. So the book is structured into, um, into several parts. The first part is a broad introduction to, the, to both fields, to infographics and visualization, because I don't really see a clear difference between the two of them, although there is a difference, but it is not very clear. The, the boundaries between infographics and visualization are really fuzzy, in my opinion. So I provide like a, like a broad theory and cohesive theory of how you should approach information graphics. And the first part is actually related to the actual, to the title of the book, The Functional Art, because what I explain there 
is that infographics and visualizations are not just, you know, art pieces or, you know, graphic design pieces. You should think about graphics as if they were tools, like a hammer, right? So you have some raw materials, in, the, in our case it's data, and you have to shape those materials in a way that can be used by a reader to understand a story or to understand a piece of information. So the, what, that's what infographics are about. So that is the reason why the book is titled The Functional Art. That doesn't mean that I don't, that I don't think that beauty and aesthetics and, you know, are, are not important. They are extremely important to what we do because you want to grab readers' attention to your story. But they are secondary compared to structure, compared to functionality, etc. Second part is a little bit about a, a cognitive science, although it's a very broad overview of uh, perception and cognition, etc., and how it relates to graphic design principles. Because one of the things that I have seen in design schools and in journalism schools is that they explain the principles of graphic design, but they don't explain that the principles of graphic design, for instance, hierarchy, unity, variety, all those principles that are taught in graphic design schools and journalism schools are actually related to how the eye and the brain work in one sense. So I explain a little bit about that, although I am not a cognitive scientist myself. Then there is a part about practice. So I, it's a very long a section on several projects, how several projects came about from the very beginning until the end. So I show a lot of sketches and a lot of, you know, I show you the, the entire creative creation process. And the last part is a series of uh, interviews with people that I consider at the very top of our profession, uh, such as John Greenway and, uh, you know, uh, Steve Duens and Shaquin from the New York Times, uh, Hannah Fairfield from the, um, from the Washington Post. So there are several people there who do infographics and visualization there. And Mor Moritz is there as well. Uh, so somehow, just, somehow yeah. sneaked in. Yeah. I don't know. How yeah. <laughs> he just showed up in the yeah. middle of that section. Yeah. <laughs> you made a mistake somewhere, Alberto. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's actually a great interview, I think, because it's very, you know, it's very clarifying the interview that I made with him. Yeah. We talked about beauty that's additional and ego boosting for Moritz all the time. <laughs> that's yeah. dangerous. People yeah, need to stop yeah. that, otherwise it gets out of control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I start so getting is, envious, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I just, I just finished. So that is the story of the. Uh, it's actually a very, I believe, a very simple, broad introduction to the field, and it's a very personal book. So it actually. It shows you how easy, in a sense, it is to get started in this field. Because many people think that our field is all related to software and obscure programming languages and stuff. But that comes after you learn the foundations. And that's usually something that I explain to my students. If you learn a little bit of R or Excel and a little bit of Illustrator and a little bit of a, little bit of a couple of two or three different software tools and you learn the uh, foundations, the theoretical foundations of the field, you can get started producing graphics right away. And my students are really surprised when, you know, one month or two months after getting started in my courses, they are actually producing information graphics already. Mm -hmm. two months after. Mm -hmm. And they are, you know, they are impressed because they said, you know, I had never thought about doing graphic design or about doing, or about doing um, visualization, etc. But I can see that it's not something that alien. I mean, it's actually something that once you understand how it works, it's not that hard. Mm. I usually call my approach low-tech visualization because my knowledge of programming is really limited. <laughs> I am much better at conceptualizing, conceptualizing ideas and doing sketches and try to imagine, try to envision what data sets 
uh, are saying and extracting stories from those data sets and then conveying those stories through graphics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah. So, I, oh, sorry, Moritz, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to briefly mention that I fully agree with you, and uh, and this is always this is something. It's very similar to what I say to people that people tend to be so much centered around the latest technology, but it's true that even if I think there we can make a lot of advancements in in terms of visualization technology, there are a few tools around that if you if you have the right the right knowledge in your head then you can really do a lot of stuff already with these tools you don't really you don't really need to have the the latest high tech technology in your computer neither you need to be the uh, very skilled software engineer you just need to learn a few a few things and and what i what i normally suggest is to stick with the, with standard tools stuff that have a pro proved uh, um that yeah record of achievements record of achievements yeah, right yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. like mm. those that you mentioned illustrator are maybe even tableau or stuff like that tableau processing I mean, th there, there must be a reason why people always mention them or use them right yeah, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. i agree with that yeah and, and I, I mean if you think about the story of our field and the classics in our field uh, you know, there were great visualizations done in the 19th century with just pen and paper. I mean, John Snow's sure, map sure. Of, of the cholera outbreak, I mean, that was done by a doctor with no formal training in graphic design, and he did that with pen and paper. And it's one of the most wonderful uh, data visualizations ever done. Mm. And, and, you know, so that is, the, uh, that is the approach in my classes, how to think about data and how to sketch ideas out that later on can be transformed into interactive data visualizations or narrative pieces, etc. But the software, even if it's important and it helps, it's secondary compared to the structuring of the information or the cons uh, you know the conceptualizing of the uh, of the inf the conceptualization step of the of the process. That mm -hmm. is the most important step. Yeah, I found that interesting too. That you actually in the book you don't really talk about neither statistics in-depth or or like tools like how you yeah like what, what types of programs you can use but uh now that i also understand that it's coming from the journalistic perspective i can totally see now the, that the the key point of the book is really about storytelling and and constructing narratives right and that is that is the thing yeah i i mean i thought about including something like an intro to a very, a very basic intro to statistics and i actually started writing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. about descriptive <laughs> descriptive statistics and yeah. a little bit about inferential statistics but at the end i thought you know I don't want to have a, a technical, a very sure. technical book. I mm -hmm. want to have a more conceptual book that conveys my own vision of the field. Mm -hmm. And later on, after I write this book, if I decide that I, write, I need to write a more technically oriented book about statistics, cartography, etc., mm -hmm. I, yeah. I can do that later. Sure, and I actually sure. may do it later. From a journalistic uh, point of view, obviously, because that's, that's my background. So yeah. I may, you know, something tailored and aimed specifically at journalists and designers. Yeah. Although it can be read by, you know, data visualizers, obviously. I believe that one of the things that I see in many data visualizations, and this is not, uh, you know, this is not criticism. I love many data visualizations that I see every day uh, right now. But the problem that the challenge that I see in many of them is that it is not very clear 
what the designer of that visualization was trying to do. So it is not very clear in those beautiful, very complex, you know, colorful visualizations that you see out there sometimes, what the story is. Mm -hmm. So they have what I call the exploratory layer, so you can explore the data, but beforehand, the designer doesn't include a presentation layer where he or she tells you, well, these are the main points of the data set, and these are the, main, the most important parts of the data set. These are the mo most important numbers and phenomena. And after readers get that, they have a clue about how to navigate the exploratory part later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and this is, I mean, that, that struck me also, like both at Malofier and now reading the book again, that our, our background is there so different because I come much more from the... From So I got started into the topic by seeing Ben Fry's work and Martin Wattenberg's work and Jonathan Harris and so on. These very, you know, these very open exploratory tools where the main uh, fascination is, wow, you know, there's this huge data set and you can and write wonderful. these programs. I mean, they are amazing. Exactly. They are amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was how I got into the field. And I just later discovered like all the great work that you know, has been done by journalists for decades and mm -hmm. and all the mm -hmm. really interesting, also simple and static formats, you know, you can yeah, choose. Yeah. And yeah. I believe, and that is, that is something that is related to the content of my classes and the content of the book, that we can bring those two fields together, in mm -hmm. a sense. If you take one side, the side that I come from, news infographics, infographics, journalistic infographics, we have the presentation side. We are good at presenting information and summarizing and synthesizing information and extracting what the main stories in the data are. But we are not good at creating the exploratory side of the story, creating, you know, interactive data visualizations that readers can navigate. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, if you go to the other side, the data visualizer side, you are very good at creating the exploratory side, but you have still to develop, in my opinion, the, the, the storytelling side of the, uh, of the field. So if we bring those two things together, if we learn from each other, I think that we will be much better off in the future. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... Mean, I think that's really interesting because listening to what you are saying, both of you are saying, I feel like I, I, I come from yet a different background. <laughs> the third side. <laughs> a, third, a third side. It's all a mess. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, in a way, the, the way I, I see information visualization, even historically, is an interactive visualization that helps people investigating some specific data for the purpose of their own job, right? So mm -hmm. there's actually mm -hmm. no real story to tell there. So yeah. I, I'm each, curious... Each person, each person gets his or her own stories. I mean, I mean you have stories. doctors, scientists of any kind, biologists, mm. whatever, yeah. Yeah. and they are using a specific tool uh, built and developed by an information visualization designer who doesn't really know what's the message there. There's no story to tell. The main purpose of the tool is to help people discover interesting patterns or just make sense of the data because they don't know what what the data mm. what the, what, what is in the data, right? And they might be mm -hmm. able to exchange the data, right? So there might be an open button somewhere in the application, and you just <laughs> yeah. load a new data set, uh -huh. which yeah. you don't uh -huh. do yeah. in a newspaper graphic, of uh -huh. course. Uh -huh. yeah. And I think yeah. many many of us in this field. Is still see information visualization in this way. And I'm yeah. sure some people are puzzled when they hear this, this 
um, telling stories with data because it doesn't really match with our mental model of what information visualization is. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, sure. I mean, there are certain visualizations that are exclusively exploratory. Scientific visualizations, for instance, are like that because the people who read them already have the background to understand what story should be extracted from those data sets. Mm -hmm. But my approach is visualization for general readers. So when you create, for instance, a visualization about the latest uh, Census Bureau data in the U.S., uh, you can present all those numbers to readers if you want to. So you can create an interactive visualization, a wonderful one like the, uh, the one made by the New York Times a while ago, or one that was released by The Guardian just yesterday or something. They created like a wonderful map where you could see all the data from the census. So that is a visualization side. But at the same time, I believe that it is also important if you are going to address, if you are going to create your graphic for a general audience, to, first of all, create like a presentation layer where you tell readers, well, these are the main data points. Think about Hans Rosling, for instance, what Hans Rosling does. That's exactly what he does. Mm. First of all, he presents the main points of the data with that style that, I mean, he, he, he seems to be presenting a soccer game. And he says, you know, take a look at Africa here. Take a look at, you know, <laughs> Europe there. Take a, so that is the presentation side of mm -hmm. the story. Is when you get people excited about the data. It's the headline of the story in a journalistic sense. So you get people excited about the data that you are presenting. And then after you present the data in, in an animated form or something, or, you know, but a very interesting way, it's when you stop presenting the data and you present and you give the readers the tool to explore the data on their own. Mm -hmm. So that, that is the sense, that is, that, is, that is why I usually see that you could bring those things, uh, do those two things together. If you're going to create a graphic to communicate with a general audience, Obviously, in the scientific world, the uh, the approach is slightly different. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although also in science, it becomes more and more important to have, let's say, a strong characteristic visual that is also deep in a sense that it's very like contains a lot of detail, but is still at the same time catchy enough to work on the cover of Nature, you know, or <laughs> as a poster draw attention. So I think also scientists um, increasingly understand these two sides. You know that. The one type of graphic is the one they use for exploration and maybe internally to discuss results. But mm -hmm, there's also mm -hmm. the other kind of derived, for them derived form, where you mm -hmm. where you boil down the key results into a strong mm -hmm. visual. Mm -hmm. And that yeah, that is, that is interesting. One of the most one of the clearest things to me. I mean, that was very clear to me when I interviewed uh, Jeff McGee, who works at the university at the, at Stanford University for the book, yeah. because he's exactly doing that. I mean, he's a journalist who's working in a, in a scientific environment mm. and helping scientists communicate better. Yeah, helping scientists to get to the point. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the thing. <laughs> no, but it's, it's really important. And, yeah. <laughs> right, Enrico? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I couldn't agree. And not being all over the place. Yeah, I believe that we can learn from each other. Uh, scientists can learn from journalists how to summarize information on how to present it effectively yeah. but at the same time journalists need to need for, need to learn from scientists because we journalists have a you know have this tendency to be 
too shallow in some cases. Yeah. And we need to tell, you know, yeah, or maybe too stories. much focused on this one key story. And I think exactly. so much yeah. power can yeah. be in this in this mechanism where each reader can sort of discover his own story or look up his own hometown, you know? And then yeah. Yeah. there is then you cannot answer that question anymore, like what's the story? What's the key yeah. story? Where's the scoop? But it still can be very enjoyable and informative for many people. And, yeah, you know? and, and there are some people out there who are already doing that. Think exactly. about the New York Times. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I the mean, New York yeah. Times is actually doing that. Yeah, one type of feedback I often get from journalists when they hear about my work or when I present my work is that, well, that's all nice and dandy that you can like spend like six weeks on you know, doing like one, one <laughs> map or something like this. But we have to like spit out graphics, you know, on, on a high pace. So um, any, any thoughts on that, how, how maybe the average newsroom can improve on, on, on this end, like doing sure, innovative sure. data visualization or interesting stuff, but given the, the very practical constraints therein? Yeah, I mean, that is, that is why I call my approach low-tech visualization, mm -hmm. because that's exactly what I do. Yeah. So I, I, I actually, I, I, there was, a, was a, a, a woman who wrote a very short a review of the book the other day saying that it was very clear by reading the book that I have always worked in, a, you know, in newsrooms in, a, in the sense that I have always worked with very limited resources. Mm -hmm. So it, what you have to do if you're working in a newsroom and you have very limited resources and you still want to produce great graphics and visualization is first of all, try to limit the amount of projects that you work on. And that is, that is, you know, that is hard to do sometimes because you get a lot of requests from different people asking for different kinds of graphics. But somehow you have to narrow it down. Mm -hmm. You have to, first of all, identify what the main stories are in the week or in the month and, that, and do graphics just for those. Mm -hmm. So you, you may create, for instance, a big project every week or something like that. That would be a realistic, a very realistic output for a very small a visualization and infographics department or a couple of big graphics mm -hmm. every week. So that is the first thing. And the second thing is to take advantage of you know, the many wonderful tools that you have out there right now. So instead of learning you know, a, a, a very fancy the newest fancy programming language, try to stick to the very basics. Try to stick to, you know, Illustrator, uh, R, if you want to do some statistical analysis, maybe learn some processing or a little bit of JavaScript with V3. Mm -hmm. That is not that hard. And, and just use that or mm -hmm. use Google Fusion tables. I mean, there, you can do wonderful things with Fusion tables. Uh, so it's just a sticking, to the, uh, to, sticking to the very basics and adapting your uh, your output to the limitations that you have in your newsroom obviously if you only have two people doing graphics in a newsroom you cannot be the new york times because the new york times have 30 people doing doing information graphics so you have to adapt your your scope or your expectations to your own limitations mm -hmm. and simply work with that yeah i think that makes a whole lot of sense yeah and i mean the times Many things have been said why they are so great or not or whatever. But I think one thing they really do smart is combine like long-term developments and but in a sense that they develop their own toolkits and their own like recurring elements that, that enable them then to act very quickly. So they, yeah. they somehow manage to build up that both from a team perspective but as well from a technical perspective to have this very agile 
you know, loose yeah. collection of things and people that yeah. enable them to, to act very yeah. quickly, I think. Well, the New, the New York Times, I, I talk a lot about the New York Times because I get the, the print New York Times every day yeah, yeah. In, in my front door. So I am a fan. Yeah. I'm a fanboy of the New York Times. But it's not a good example because uh, for newsrooms mm. in general. It doesn't uh, because, work like I mean, that, right? Yeah. Yeah, nobody is the New York Times, and nobody can, yeah. you know, can achieve what the New York Times does at the same level of quality and the same yeah, level yeah. of uh, amount sure. of output, yeah, yeah. because there are a lot of people. But there are smaller newsrooms and smaller teams who are also putting out a wonderful work. Mm. So the Washington Post, for instance, yeah, the, sure. Bos the Boston Globe, mm -hmm. for instance, you know, there are the Chicago Tribune. There are smaller newspapers with a smaller staff staffs that are creating wonderful wor uh, work with much more limited uh, resources. Mm -hmm. But this is still wonderful because, oh, The Guardian, think about The Guardian. Yeah, yeah, it's mean, great stuff. They and, and they also do very stuff. pragmatic things. So they don't invest exactly. much in that like developing their own graphical style or they're happy also using standard tools like Google, Google Maps or something, but they always have an interesting twist to the story side. Yeah, yeah, and they, and they collect their, their own data sets data. and share them again. Yeah. Exactly, I, that I is love wonderful. That. I really yeah. love that. I really love that. Yeah. I really love that. Yeah. They are wonderful at that. So yeah, that is the approach. I mean, look at the Guardian, look at the Chicago Tribune, mm -hmm. Boston Globe, the Washington Post, mm -hmm. etc. Yeah, that is the approach. And the magazine world, like how are things in 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 the magazine world? Do you do you, are there any interesting emerging new publications, well, or is yeah. this this type of High-end infographic, is that not still in the, uh, current? Not in the U.S. Mm -hmm. that I am aware of. Okay. Uh, I mean, if you look at the uh, traditional news uh, weeklies, for instance, none of them are doing great uh, graphics mm -hmm. other than, you know, Bloomberg Business Week is doing some interesting work. Okay. Uh, that could be one of the uh, that could be one of the cases. Bloomberg Business Week, mm -hmm. uh, but the others are not doing great uh, things in general, with some exceptions. That said, it, it happens in South America. If mm -hmm. you go to South America, for instance, if you go to Brazil, for example, which is a country that I know quite well, uh, there are several news publications there, both newspapers and magazines who are really pushing the envelope. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you have the magazine that I used to work for, Epoca, mm -hmm. which is a weekly magazine that sells a uh, around uh, half a million copies a week, so it's a big magazine, and they are producing wonderful information graphics work and also uh, interactive data visualizations mm -hmm. about you know, the political issues and economical issues, etc. There is a newspaper called Estado de São Paulo in Brazil who is putting together a data journalism team. So it's not, it's not just visualization. They are also gathering and processing their own data. Mm -hmm. La Nación in Argentina are doing a wonderful job, in my opinion. They also have a data, a data, a data journalism team. La Nación from Costa Rica, they have a very strong investigative team that produce, creates data sets. And I visited them a while ago. That is the reason why I know them quite well. Mm -hmm. And what the kind of work that they're producing is just unbelievable. I mean, they just, they create investigative stories based on data. And the most important one that they published in the past couple of years basically, you know, it, it, it basically proved that several ministers in the government were not paying their taxes, basically, mm -hmm. and several ministers in the country had to renounce oh, wow. because, uh, of, wow. because of a data journalism project. <laughs> because of a bar chart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because of a bar chart. It wasn't really a bar chart. It was a data set. But it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, that data journalism 
data journalism and data processing and visualization. Great, yeah. Yeah, what, so, what, what it can be achieved, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. with Alberto, very limited resources because these newspapers are, again, are not the New York Times. Sure. Yeah. I'm curious to hear that, Alberto, do you think in South America there is even a stronger trend than in the U.S. or anywhere else in, in, in the world? Well, it's not a stronger trend. If you, I mean, the problem with American media, particularly newspapers and magazines, is that they are going through very hard times. So they don't have, basically, they don't have money to invest mm. in, you know, data journalism or visualization with several exceptions, all right? Several exceptions. ProPublica, for instance, I forgot to mention them, but ProPublica is also doing great, great work mm. in visualization terms. But the problem with American media in general is that there is no money because they are selling, you know, less, fewer copies and, you know, they are getting uh, less advertisement money. So there's a huge problem with, uh, uh, with budget. There are a lot of budget issues. But in South America, Brazil, Argentina, Peru, and, and other countries, newspapers are still selling relatively well. They are not shrinking, and they still have advertisement, mm -hmm. advertisement money. So they have some time to adapt to the new world. They start hiring, you know, programmers and developers and, you know, hackers, etc. I mean, it was unbelievable that... Or, or at least unthinkable a while ago that a newspaper in South America would hire a hacker. But now there are some newsrooms in South America who have hired hackers to actually get data and process the data and create data sets, etc. So that is the reason why that trend has shown up in South America. The challenge in, in South American media is that they don't have the theoretical foundations in a sense. I mean, journalism schools don't teach data journalism and don't teach programming, something that we do here in the U.S. Okay. At, the, at the School of Communication in here in Miami, our students learn visualization, but they also learn how to do programming with JavaScript and other, and other tools. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I also that's also one of the things I recall from Malofier is the Russian infographics because they had this very unique like style and and also were very experimental in in just how they used media and uh, so I had that sense of okay let's let's look at Russia occasionally because there might be interesting developments there. Yeah, cultural diversity is diversity is wonderful. Yeah, and it I really mean, shows and, and, in the in the yeah. graphics. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There are, I mean, there are many countries where visualization and graphics are uh, developing and, and being used more uh, more broadly uh, and deeply, such as Russia, for instance, Brazil, for instance. And each country is developing its own style, in a sense. Totally. It, it's not something, you know, that you can clearly tell, but mm -hmm. you can at least guess that something is going on there, yeah, yeah. That, that they are creating <laughs> like a new style. And that is wonderful because it brings diversity to this field. It's not just, you know, tafty principles of simplicity and mm -hmm. minimalistic approaches, etc., as wonderful as they are and as important as they are. But again, there are some tweaks that you can introduce to the, uh, to the main rules or principles of our field and try to adapt them to your own culture in some sense. Sure. And I, I have that sense that now graphics are getting more experimental again. And maybe that also, yeah, again, the, 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 the programmers and the, the hackers experimenting with visuals has led actually to a new 
way of, of yeah, bending the rules of, of traditional diagram making, I guess. Yeah, you have to do that with care. Though. I mean, you have to be careful with that because, you know, yeah. if, you, if you try to stretch the field out too much, you can break it. Yeah. That, is the, that is the thing. So I usually say that I am completely in favor of experimentation and using new graphic forms. And that is something a bit challenging in newsrooms because, believe it or not, journalists are... Uh, you know, very conservative, mm. very, very I can imagine. conservative. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so when, whenever you try to publish some, a graphic that is not a bar chart or a line chart or mm -hmm. something, journalists tend to get scared. So the first time <laughs> that I tried to use a scatter plot in a, in a, in a newspaper, everybody was like, whoa, what, whoa, what is this? Two dimensions. Yeah, two dimensions there, two variables there. Readers will not understand that. But it turns out that readers understand that. If sure. you use a scatter plot and you explain it well, because mm -hmm. this is something that sometimes we, we forget in visualization, that the annotation layer, what the New York Times people call the annotation layer, so including a little, a short line telling readers, well, reader, this is a new graphic form, this is how it's read, and mm -hmm. you explain how to read it. What, the first time that you use that graphic form, readers will have a hard time, will take a couple of minutes to figure it out, but then when you use that graphic form again, Readers will be will be ready to read it. Will be already know. We already know how yeah, to read a yeah. scatter plot, or you know, a, a, a slope graph, or you know, several different kinds of graphics that are not so common, but they can be useful for particular stories. Yeah. So innovation is a must. And, and I would also have say, to be anyone who's to at these days, you know, reading a printed newspaper, you know, is capable of figuring out stuff. I know? believe so. That, that's what I say. Yeah. I mean, if you are a reader of, of the Washington Post, yeah. I mean, you have certain, you know, cultural background that allows you to, you know, to read a fairly complex chart. I usually say in newsrooms, because, I mean, you're, none of you are journalists, but if, if a journalist is listening to this conversation right now, probably this with Striacord, because <laughs> a, a journalists usually say, well, this graphic is too complex, or it's too complicated, it's too difficult to read. And my answer to that is, well, if you expect your reader to read a 4,000-word long story, a very complex <laughs> story telling a very complex, you know, mm. corruption yeah. scandal in the government, you have to create your graphics accordingly. I mean, you cannot create stories written for adults, for adults, mm. and, and, and create graphics aimed at uh, adolescents or child yeah. or children. Excellent point. Because that's, that's what, that's what happens. Yeah. In yeah. 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 That's, what, that's the argument that I usually use. Mm -hmm. But it's true that the amount, the amount of explanation you can give in a, in a newspaper is so limited compared to other settings where you, you still want to use visualization as a presentation tool, like for instance in presentations, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess Hans Rosling, when presenting his, his visualizations, he, he has the opportunity to explain what they are before showing them. But doing that in a, in a written format in a newspaper is much harder, right? It is harder, but again, you can take the, bo the be best things from both worlds. What I have done in the past, when I, for instance, when I was in Brazil, one of the things that we did, we had a weekly se section in the magazine that I used to work for called The Diagram. So it was a story told 
through graphics and charts and diagrams, etc., and illustrations, etc. And whenever we had a very complex data set or a very complex story, what we did in the print magazine was just to present the main facts. And then we had like a little box there, very visible, saying, if you want to learn more, this is the URL. So okay. we, yep. we told sure. our readers, well, go online and you will get the entire data set. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then sure. they went online sure. and they got the entire, you know, the entire sure. sets of numbers and they sure. could explore the data. Sure. So that is the approach, I believe. Mm-hmm. I, I'm still dreaming of an elegant solution to enable people like to jump from the print graphic directly into the same interactive, you know, like at a given like pivot point or so, but <laughs> it's not so easy, yeah. Maybe with <laughs> it's not easy at all. <laughs> yeah, but maybe well, at least you know, they could add like tiny URLs, you know, or like short links for the annotated maybe. data points. Why not? Our QR maybe. codes, but I mean, QR codes are lame, but something along these lines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a, there's a lot of innovation still to be done in this field, yeah. I believe. The other thing I'm yeah. always looking for is to have a nice print export for web graphics, which we might achieve with SVG and so on, you know, like a nice workflow. That, yeah. that allows you to work on both things in parallel, like for the first Tell 80% percent, yeah. and then optimize. <laughs> so in case you find something nice there, I could, I could use I, it. I will let you know, because that is one of the challenges that, that, that we have right now. Yeah. But I mean, you know, as I said before, tools are things that come and go mm. and we have to adapt to the new world. Something will, you know, will show up eventually that will allow you to do that. And we will have to adapt to that new tool that allows you to, to do that. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, just remember what happened with, um, adaptation is one of our main, one of our main you know, uh, features in, in our field. One of the main things that we have to do to adapt to new tools. Remember what happened with Flash, for instance. We used to create a lot of visualizations with Flash. Now, well, we don't do that much work with Flash anymore. And it's don't not... tell it to Moritz. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm still so sad. Fan. I'm still so sad. <laughs> I used to be a Flash fan. I, I loved Action Script and yeah. I loved Flash, etc. Uh, he's a big fan. I am a big fan myself. Okay. But, you know, yeah. We have to adapt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. No, but uh, it's I, I'm uh, on the long run. I'm all for web standards and browser-based stuff and so on. So it's yeah, just yeah. at but the moment so difficult to yes, you know to, I mean, to, to just acknowledge that you still love Flash. I, absolutely, the globe I'm building. It's in Flash. It's the best technology, in fact, for that type of yeah. thing. So we use yeah. the 3D yeah. features and we can use multi-touch yeah. for the installation part and so yeah. It's not quite it's not totally dead yet but it's it's smelling a bit funny yeah, yeah maybe maybe adobe maybe adobe will come up with uh, with something yeah eventually maybe it's like flash yeah, but let you explore oh. in html5 or something i don't know i'm scared to see that <laughs> are you scared yeah. adobe has not made a big name in the last few years for making yeah good software, that's right you know? that's correct yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so i'll, I'll Alberto, I wanted to ask you, going, going back to your book, I wanted to ask you, so uh, apart from, from your students and students in journalism, what, what can other pe- people coming from other backgrounds can get from your book? Well, I mean, the book, as I, as I said before, I wrote it for students and also my peers in newsrooms and in graphic design, etc. But it can be read by anybody who is interested in, in, in graphics, because I believe that Graphic, the same way that journalists and designers should read Tafty and should read the Stephen Few and should read, you know, Colin Ware, Stephen Costling and all the people who have written about charts to, and maps, etc., to learn about those. Same way, I believe that 
people from business intelligence and from from data visualization, etc., could learn a little bit more about storytelling and could learn a little bit more about how to, how to structure, you know, pieces of data to to tell stories and to communicate with readers. So that is that is, I guess, what what can be learned. And also, you know, having a more functional approach uh, to the uh, to the story because what I said before about uh, uh, the title of the book, The Functional Art, that comes from the fact that many people in newsrooms, many designers in newsrooms, uh, still think as artists, meaning that they get a data set and they try to adapt the, uh, visual, the visual representation of that data set to a particular graphic form, rather than, first of all, think about what the data set, uh, what kind of information the data set conveys, and then create the graphic form according to the story that you want to tell, or according to the tasks your visualization should help with. So uh, the same thing can be said about data visualizers or data designers in some sense. I see many works out there that are wonderful from an aesthetics uh, standpoint. They look wonderful and they are very well designed, but then they are not very useful and they are not usable and their point is not very clear. So as I said before, both worlds, I believe, can learn from each other. And I think that the, that the meeting point is that if you want to communicate effectively, there are certain principles that you should apply or that you that may be useful for your yeah. for your work but regardless of if you are a designer a journalist a data visualizer or a scientist mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but i think looking looking at what you say in in the in the book i think you are also stressing the other the other side of the coin i mean people who are too much too much functional they also have to learn that there are constraints and especially in terms of uh, information density i mean people students coming in my courses or from my area are people who are taught to have a very high information density and try to make complex things basically mm -hmm. make trying to make them simple but still they are complex and i think what i really like of of your of your book sorry is that you seem to stress also this other aspect and i think it's really nice Am I correct if I say that, so I had a note from your book, I really like this visualization wheel that you explain in, uh, uh -huh. in the foundations uh -huh. um, uh -huh. chapter uh, part, sorry, uh -huh. and I think that's just, it, it's a very interesting tool for everyone, regardless the background of the, of the data visualization person who is approaching this, this, this area, because I don't know. Maybe you want to introduce the visualization wheel before I comment too much on it, because yes, well, I mean the visualization wheel. The visualization wheel is something that I developed for my own work to visualize visualize my own graphics, and it's basically a tool. It's not a very scientific tool. I would not. I would not recommend it to use it in research projects, for instance, for analyzing visualization, etc. It's something that I developed myself to balance out different constraints and different features in visualization, different pairs mm. of features yeah. that are related to each other, such as density and lightness, uh, such as, you know, aesthetics and functionality. So those two opposite things should be balanced out in a, in a graphic. And it depends on the way you balance out and the way you use the wheel to conceptualize your own projects. It depends on many factors, depends on who you're working for, 
where your graphic is going to be published and also who your audience is. So for instance, in the case of your students, the audience your students are speaking to is probably scientists. So it makes sense that they stress density. That's what I would do mm. because scientists already have the, enough background information to understand that density. But if you are going to present that information to a general reader, you want to make sure that you structure the information in a way that can be understood. And let me tell you something about a, a little bit more about that. Many journalists, what they do when they have to present complex information to readers is to get rid of complexity. They just present the summary of the data. And something that I explain in the book is that that is also the wrong approach. What you have to do is to structure your graphics in layers. So first of all, you present the main facts or the main points of the story, but then you organize the information like in a step-by-step -step process or in a, in a gradual degree of complexity. Mm -hmm. So first of all, you present the main facts, and then after that, you let readers explore those facts. All right, So you could have the, the best things from both worlds. Yeah. I, I, I believe that's an interesting part. Also, I think in, in your book, the, towards the end, when you describe the the visual hierarchy of different graphics and how you first, you know, how you how you sketch and lay out the interplay of individual graphics, because that make up a bigger piece. Right. And mm -hmm. and that's something I haven't seen before in a in a information design book or a data visualization book because they're often just focused on the one diagram, but you never get the story. You know how to tie really tie hard, in yeah. many annotations yeah. into a big visual and then have a few you know little graphs on the side. How do you make sure people read the important stuff first and then the details yeah. and and how they navigate such a, a big page well, and so on? So yeah. that's very interesting. Yeah, that that is not something that I invented. Mm -hmm. I mean. It, Sure. 90% of the things or 95% of the things that are in, in the functional art were invented by someone else. <laughs> it's only that yeah, yeah. what I did, I mean, any book is like that. Yeah, I mean, you sure. just, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants, like it's usually said. So if you take Few and you take Tufty and you take Costling and you take all the, you know, the great people, or you take both, both of you actually, and you gather all the information that you get and you, and, and you, can, you can work based on that. What you said about the structuring information in several pieces or telling stories through various graphics, through different graphics, it's something that I do in my own work a lot. Mm. I, don't, I don't usually try to tell the entire story through a single graphic form because I believe that yep. that, is, that is actually overwhelming. Yep. And I feel overwhelmed when tip. I see a graphic that tries to say too many things through a single graphic form. Mm. So two approaches that I developed in my own work is, first of all, Take advantage of a small multiples. Mm -hmm. That is one thing. And that, that comes from Tafti. It's not something that I invented. Sure. Uh, so use a small or from, from Bertin. Bertin. Mm -hmm. So it's a small multiples or a small snippets of information that are presented uh, sequentially. So first of all, you present a line chart that tells you part of the story, then a bar chart that complements the line chart, mm -hmm. then a map that gives you another view of the same data. Exactly. And you present those as a, as a, as a linear storytelling piece, mm -hmm. the step by step, each one of, with their own headline, etc. That is one of the approaches. And the other approach is in interactive visualization. And this is, this is something that I don't see that often, but I would like to see more often is if you're going to present a very complex piece of data, Don't represent those data in a single graphic form or mm -hmm. through a single graphic form. Represent it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I talk about an example of that, a graphic of mine about world population, where I represented, or we represented, because this was done by my team, 
we represented the same data through a bubble map, through line charts, through bars, through a table, mm. and all those graphics were based on the same data set. And the reason why was the each one of those graphics allows you to do something different. Yeah. So the bubble chart lets you see yeah. the overall patterns and trends. The line charts lets you compare accurately. The bar, the, the chart, or sorry, the table allows you to see the specific values. So it's different kinds of representations of the same data set. Yeah. Uh, I am personally a huge fan of this concept. Mm. I mean, so I have seen people fighting forever according <laughs> to whether it's better A or B or C. And, and there are many cases where there's no better. A is and B and C together make the sum of them is better than any single piece, right? And I think it depends on the task. It depends on the it, task, yeah, sure. It depends on what you want to get. You want, do you want to get these specifics? Use a table. Do you want to get just the, just the overall patterns? Use a bubble map. Do you want to compare accurately? Use a bar chart or a line chart. But each one of them, is not. Ex I mean, they are not ex mutually exclusive. They can be included in the same graphic. Sure. And that's, that, that's the approach, I believe. Yeah, but often it's, it's, a, it's a drift you don't get when you try to make the one map or the one graphic that that shows it all uh, and um I, yeah i've i've learned that too that often once yeah if you hit a wall there it's it can be so much easier to split it up in two or three individual graphics that together make more sense or where each of the graphics focuses on one thing and and it's all good <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't yeah, need yeah, to, yeah that's right like, and each reader uh, each reader is different also oh of there course there are people yeah. there are people who understand and this was very clear to me when 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 I interviewed uh, Stephen Costling uh, a while ago, and you are familiar with Costling, I yeah. mean, it's a, and in case our, our listeners are not familiar with Costling, Costling is a cognitive scientist that has written extensively about about charts. And I interviewed him a while ago for El País, which is a newspaper in Spain. The interview is not in the book because he's not a, a practitioner; he is a he's a researcher. But I, I published the interview in El País, in the newspaper in Spain. And it was clear to me, in, in one part of our conversation, he told me, well, throughout the years I have discovered that there are certain people who basically cannot read graphics effectively. Their brains are not organized in a way that, can be, that, that, that allow them to understand graphics very well. So they prefer information presented in written format. Or there are people who are better at comparing. Or so the, the the idea of presenting information in different ways or with different shapes, it's actually related to the fact that there are several common cognitive principles, but then each person is slightly different to the other person. And Absolutely. so yeah, the Absolutely. the more of these different views into one topic you you or like roads <laughs> towards the topic you can offer the better. Exactly. The, yeah, mo yeah. the more options you give readers, the more readers will get the information. C that is the, uh, that's yeah, yeah. the message. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, nice. I think if I remember well, there is a, a paper published a few years ago, like two or three years ago or so, from the research of Robert Kosara and Caroline Zimkevich. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember the title, and honestly, I don't even remember perfectly the content, but I remember that they basically tested people with different visual abilities or cognitive abilities, and, uh, and they demonstrated that they read visualizations differently, basically. 
Mm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There's that, a lot of research to be done on that. Absolutely, it? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. A lot. What, that was, is a, that's was a very promising the, research area. Was this the one where it was about like the impression people get, like what they read between the lines? If, if you have like a very rigid structure, there are, people, and... there are people who are better, and this is something that you know it has been it has been found. And as I said before, I am not a cognitive scientist. You, Moritz, are a cognitive scientist. I am. I didn't want to like. <laughs> yeah, you didn't want to pursue that <laughs> but career, in fact, but you studied that formally. <laughs> but you know, there are there are certain cognitive styles, yeah. meaning that everybody has a common a, a common cognitive cognitive structure in mm-hmm. their brain. So everybody sure. understands things basically the same. But then there are slight differences in the way people approach information, mm-hmm. and there are people who see visual patterns more easily than other people. There sure. are people who don't see visual patterns at all in, in, in graphics, but mm-hmm. there are people who are much better at that. So, you know, how you balance that out in, a, in an information graphic or in a visualization, the fact that a portion of your readers are not that great at seeing patterns in the data. I believe that you can address that problem basically using short pieces of text Telling readers, for instance, and that is what Hans Rosling does in his presentations, and what the New York Times yeah. does with yeah, the little absolutely. with the little explanatory text in their graphics. Hey, reader, pay attention at this point here, at this data point here. Mm. This is the state of Massachusetts, or this is the state of whatever. Pay attention at, at the unemployment rate here, and that gives readers a clue of how to read the graphic as well and how to perceive patterns in the data. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's so, definitely something I'm taking home from the whole infographics world is the power of annotations, you know? So, you know, a really strong infographic is all about good annotations and, and labels. And in, in data visualization, you might have, if you get lucky, you get a tooltip somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I, I think specialists, you know, picking exactly the right spot-on annotations and you know presenting them in a smart way. That, yeah, I believe that's, that is that's a, that where is we can maybe point. bridge these two worlds. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and we will be better off for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. I, great conversation. I'm. I think. I mean, we we recorded almost an hour or maybe even longer. Yeah. So um. I've, I would do it for ages. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe we should. Um, this is fun. <laughs> we, should we should have an ongoing conversation. Exactly. Uh, Alberto, we we'll have an have offspring a, podcast. <laughs> second, second or third part, or at exactly. least as many parts as you have in the book. How many parts you have? Four. Uh, actually, it's uh, four. Yes. Four. Ah, yeah. yeah. I'm sad we already reached uh, about one hour. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Some but we already people have been telling us we long. should keep it short. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. we, we, we are getting it. nervous now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, too much. Well, thank you stuff. for thank you for having me. It was really a, a lot of fun. Yeah, so yeah, great, we, and um, I, I enjoyed reading the book. I just read it quickly, so as uh, Enrico, so I have to now read it properly again. But um, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I really appreciate the perspective, and I got I, I, I drew quite a few things out of it already. So. Yeah. Now I yeah, would like to you know. hide myself in a highland and uh, have the time <laughs> to, to read the book, the old book, yeah, uh, yeah page after page. Well, if your visa <laughs> takes longer, you you have a lot of time to read. <laughs> yeah, I, just I, I, I can give you I can give you some advice uh, about visa visa issues in the US, but <laughs> we should do that out of the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nah, and it's, I, it's gonna turn out fine. I don't know. I'm a little bit cautious. I've heard, I, probably it's not true, but I've heard somewhere that two guys have been refused their visa just because they wrote something strange on Twitter oh. about their application process. <laughs> so I'm getting nervous. Yeah, you so never know. So you never know uh, where uh, these big actually eyes. tell you that. Be careful with what you write in mm. social media. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope they don't well, listen to podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. that's right. That's right. I should be careful myself <laughs> <laughs> all right guys thank you so much yeah thanks yeah, for, thanks, for uh, coming yeah it was great it was great and Bye. i hope to see you in uh, the u.s sorry, yeah, soon. Go ahead. <laughs> i hope to see you in the u.s sometime well you are going to be closer now so yeah, yeah the two of you should meet oh, definitely yeah yeah <laughs> should come down to miami the weather is much nicer oh, yeah. i'd love to <laughs> ah, you have to make a conference and talk to and my students. That would be sure. great. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, Thank Alberto. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.